This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. Good morning. Let me ask you to take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The last uh, chapel, and so therefore the last message is uh, for me this year. I've been trying to focus on leadership uh, aspects of it in terms of, of strengthening or, I hope, developing us as leaders since the role of a pastor or shepherd is a leadership role. It is intended to provide direction for local congregations, and so to lead well, uh, I think we need to understand some truths about leadership. And I'd like to look at a passive scripture uh, and, and uh, focus briefly on what its primary intent is, but then also zero in on it from the standpoint of Paul's mindset about ministry, and I think, I hope, will be helpful to us. Look at 1 Corinthians 4. I'd like to read verses 1 through 5. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. So the the issue at, at Corinth was obviously as a, the congregation was in conflict. Uh, it opens up in chapter one by saying, "I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of the Lord." But in reality, I think you could make the case that the primary point of tension was actually the groups that were going, "I'm of Apollos and I'm of Paul." Because by chapter 3, he narrows it in there. Look at 3-4. He, he sort of drops uh, Paul, uh, Peter out, Cephas, and, and he doesn't really drop the Lord out, but he, he actually doesn't take him as one of the groups, right? For when I say I'm of Paul, when you, one says I'm of Paul, and another I'm of Apollos, are you not mere men? And then he begins to just address that. And, and look at the text, the verse right after the one I finished reading, verse 6 of chapter 4. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that no one may learn, you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. So I think you can make the case that this is really, uh, and it's rooted uh, in the ministry mindset difference between the two groups. Okay, I don't really believe there's a problem between Apollos and Paul. Okay, that, that they're not actually at odds with each other. And I think Paul tries to make that case. I and mean, we're just the Lord's servants. But there were people who were attracted to Apollos' ministry in some way as over against Paul's and then were wanting to try and twist things to their own advantage. In all probability, because we know from Acts that Apollos was an eloquent speaker, that he was dynamic and able to confirm Vince and refute people that probably the people in chapter one who are wanting to shift away from the offensiveness of the cross to a more sophisticated message are the people who are saying, I'm of Apollos, right? They want, 
They want that kind of ministry, not Paul's, which appears weak and is so counter to their culture that, that they think it's not effective. Uh, and, and what's at the root of this, Paul pinpoints a number of times, are their fleshly desires, their pride, their arrogance. All right, so, so now think about, think about that as we come into this text, because on a human plane, the divide that Paul's having to deal with is a potentially, to use the way we describe it in our day, a potentially hurtful one. Right? Paul, in the, again, I'm talking, uh, I'm using like Pauline strategy, right? I'm speaking as a fool. I'm, I'm speaking on a human plane. Paul had a more significant ministry at Corinth than Apollos. I mean, Paul was a church planter. I mean, he had brought them the gospel. He'd seen the church established, and Apollos just came in after him and preached. Right? So, I mean, think about it the way we tend to think about it, right? Someone, someone starts a church, and another guy comes along after him who doesn't even stay there. Right? I mean, he's, he's like, you know, an extended evangelist who comes through and everyone thinks he's great. And all of a sudden there's people in the church saying, hey, we like the second guy better. I mean, that, that would be a, a situation just really ripe for someone to be hurt by it, to be, to be bothered personally by it. And, in fact, uh, that, that they were really unfavorably comparing the two. Right? When you say, I'm of Apollos, as in contrast to I'm of Paul, you're basically saying Apollos is better than Paul. And, and those are the kinds of contexts in ministry or in life where, where we can tend to be a little hurt by them. Right? It, it, it can have an adverse effect on us. Yet that's not how Paul responds. Uh, Paul doesn't respond in that kind of a way. He, in fact moves them, tries to move them to a better perspective of God's servants, but also confronts the, the chief sin that's going on. I mean, the, uh, and I, I'm not going uh, to, if you go through Ham 1 and I'm teaching it, we'll spend time working on this whole passage because I, I use it as one of the examples for identifying the theme of the passage. But what I would say is that uh, just commonly, the attention tends to be paid most to verse 2, when in fact the primary focus is verse 5, right? Because verse 5 is the command that flows out of everything that's said in verse 4, or 1 through 4. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. So, so it's not primarily about getting stewards to be faithful or trustworthy. It's primarily about telling God's people not to be prematurely judging the motives of God's servants because precisely they are God's servants, right? They, and, and they can't, in fact, judge properly. Uh, if, I, if I were to try and put it in a way that sort of captures verses 1 through 5, it would be uh, that, that all human judgment is insignificant and inconclusive in light of God's final and full judgment, so stop judging. And here's why I say insignificant. Look at verse 3. To me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. That small things mean it really doesn't matter that much. It's insignificant, (laughs) right? And insignificant and inconclusive because look what he says about his own judgment. I do not even examine myself 
For I'm not conscious, I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. In other words, he's saying, I don't know that I'm doing anything wrong, but you know what? At the end of the day, that's not the answer. I'm not acquitted because of my own judgment. It's so it's your judgment and my own judgment. Yours is insignificant, mine is inconclusive. The only one that really matters is the Lord's, right? The end of verse 3. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 4, but the one who examines me is the Lord. And then he describes in verse 5 when that judgment will take place. Wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things in darkness and disclose the motive of men's hearts, and therefore what kind of judgment it is. And he actually anticipates a favorable outcome of faithful servants, right? Then each man's praise will come to him from God. Right? And, and I think you should hear that a little bit as the, uh, the, the response to being judged by you or any human court, <laughs> or even myself. Right? So you might think I'm a polis and think I'm great, but that's really not the deal. <laughs> right? The, the thing that matters is what, what is God's assessment, and, and if that assessment will, will be one of praise, which he anticipates positively, right, then each man will have his praise from God because he believes, I think, that Apollos and he are both being faithful stewards. And, and so they will, they will receive commendation from the Lord, right? So, so what he's really talking to the Corinthians about is a, uh, a misguided view of their ability to assess and responsibility to assess. They, they uh, and particularly, I think, Paul would interior, make it an interior issue of their motives because that's what he addresses in verse 5. And, and I, again, I want, I'm, not, I'm trying to set the context for the point I'm driving at, right? But uh, the, you have to harmonize this, right? Because he says, do not go on passing judgment. And then in the very next chapter, he says, you're supposed to judge this man and remove him from the church. And in, in the chapter after that, he's talking about two people in law dispute, and he says, don't you have men who are competent to judge this? Right? So, so the don't be judging in 4-5 must not be don't be judging if they're in sin, because he tells them in the next chapter to do that. And it must not be don't exercise any level of discernment or judgment to resolve issues and problems, because it tells them in chapter 6 to do that. So, so the language of 4-5 is clearly addressing the kind of judgment that only God can do. And that is the full and final assessment, and particularly what's going on inside of the person. And that's where he talks about the things hidden in darkness, disclose the motives of men's hearts. Right? So, so that's really the point of it. What I want to do, though, is sort of, uh, if I could, uh, encourage us to meditate and think upon what Paul's mindset obviously is as a servant, right? So why wasn't he uh, why wasn't he provoked to some kind of woe is me mindset by what was happening, right? Why, why wasn't he uh, responding in a sinful burst of anger over what was going on? Because Practically, at times, you can hear people, Christians in all walks of life, but sometimes people in ministry who will excuse their uh, deep discouragement 
on the basis of other people's actions or their sinful anger and reaction on the basis of other people or their uh, essentially abandoning a ministry post over other people's actions, right? I mean, it's, it's if, if uh, you know, if you're the... If you're the guy responsible for leading the church at Corinth in some way, and you have a big chunk of people who are saying, I'm of so-and-so, uh, it may at some point lead to a church split, but I would think that that wouldn't have been coming from Paul. Right? Paul will defend the cross and the preaching of the gospel, the apostolic ministry that's been entrusted to him, for the good of the church at Corinth. What Paul is not doing is, I think, a, a, a kind of uh, woe-is-me defensive mindset that would actually have hindered his ability to lead in the midst of this. All right? So let me just draw out a couple of points that I've already sort of pointed to in it, and I think they're just another way of framing it. I think, first of all, Paul's mindset is not controlled by other people's evaluation. Right, look at verse 3 again. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. Right? So, so Paul, Paul is not controlled by other people's examination and evaluation of his ministry. That's not, that doesn't what control him. Oh, you don't like what I'm doing? Well, you know what? I'll try and be a little more Apollos-like. You don't you don't like what I'm doing. I'm gonna be uh, I'm gonna be rendered uh, ineffective in ministry because because of your opinions, right? Paul Paul actually in a sense relativizes it. It's a it's a it's an insignificant thing, right? Your evaluation is not the thing that matters most, all right? And and so I think there has to be in us. If we're responsible for leadership based on the truth of God's word, we have to recognize that from time to time and, and potentially could be most of the time. There will be people who judge us harshly because we're not doing what they want done. Right? Our ministry is not what they desire in a ministry. And that's what Paul was facing, right? They're saying, hey, we need to get past this Paul lean kind of an approach. We need, we need to, we need to uh, you know, uh, adjust the sails so that we can be more effective here. Right? And Paul, Paul was not going to be controlled by that. Right? He wasn't out to make them happy because he knew whose servant he was. So he was committed to being trustworthy and faithful and not let that control him. A second point I think that we can is if we think about verses the end of verse 3 and verse 4 he wasn't cocky about his own evaluation. Right? And here's the danger. Right? People can go it doesn't matter to me what you think because I know I'm right. Right? Instead of it being a humble determination to just serve the Lord and be faithful to Him, it starts to become a kind of overconfident, arrogant defense of self. Right? And, and Paul didn't have that kind of cockiness at all. In fact, that was, that was at the heart of part of the problem. 
right? He talks about it a couple times in, in these two letters how um, the Corinthians are willing to put up with the boasting of the super apostles. I mean, they sort of liked the people that talked about how great they were. And, and because Paul wouldn't brag about himself or exalt himself, wouldn't take advantage of things that he had a right to take advantage of, they, they considered him to be weak and inferior. And, and so Paul, it would have been, a, would have been a, a terrible contradiction to Paul's ministry uh, message and mindset for Paul all of a sudden to become uh, this arrogant, boastful, cocky guy about, hey, I know I'm right. I'm doing the right thing. He, he, he basically, uh, in this context, says, I don't know anything against myself, but at the end of the day, it's, it's going to be in God's hands. He's got to evaluate that. And that's really the third, the third part of the mindset, right? They're all, they're all joined together, but he's not controlled by other people's evaluations. He's not cocky about his own evaluation. He is content to leave it in the Lord's hands, right? The one who examines me is the Lord, right? I, he, so he... Uh, he is prepared to say, you know, at the end of all this, it's going to be the Lord who decides <laughs> who who was the faithful steward, right? And 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 there there needs to be a healthy dose of that mindset in our heart because it's not always going to work out that you can necessarily resolve every disagreement, right? I mean, there's going to be times at which people are firmly convinced that faithfulness requires A, and someone else thinks it requires B, and, and, uh, and unless it is an issue about which there must be a, a division of some sort, uh, you have to be content to say, you know, we're both going to answer the Lord at some point, and we just need to leave it in His hands. Right? This is something... Uh, on the lowest level of it, I think would be like a Romans 14. Each one needs to be convinced of his own mind because we'll each be con- uh, give account of ourselves to the Lord. Right? That's what Romans 14 talks about from 5 through 12, I believe it is. Um, I think it would be in many ways how we relate to people outside of our, our local assembly. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't, I'm not sure how many uh, emails or letters I've had to close at the end with somebody chipping at me about something and saying, you know, we're both convinced differently about this, and 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 I think we're both probably thankful that neither one of us will be on the judgment seat. So let's just leave it to the one who will be, right? You do, you do what you think Christ wants you to do. And we're going to do what we believe Christ wants us to do, and we'll leave it to Him. Right? And that's that's what Paul, I think, is saying here. Within what I'd say, and I don't have time to you know preach all of the the qualifiers on it, but I, I hinted at like chapter five and chapter six, Matthew chapter seven, right? Beware of false prophets; you'll know them by their fruits. So, so this is not uh, this is not a passage just to be wielded like Matthew seven one is wielded in our culture. Right? Judge not, lest you be judged. Right? It's not saying there's not a place for judgment and decisions made on those judgments, but generally they tend to be things about 
clear doctrinal matters or uh, actions which are out of step with the Scripture, right? That you can you can say, you know, here's what the Word of God says, and we need to make a decision on the basis of that, right? Um, but even in those places where you say, you know, we really can't walk together anymore on this. <laughs> if you think they're still a believer, then you need to be prepared to say, I'm going to leave this to the Lord. And, and I'm prepared to leave my judgment to the Lord as well. And I think have, have that kind of a heart in us, right? Because uh, if, if we don't, I think, have those kinds of uh, governing beliefs in our heart, other people's evaluations of us are not the controlling factor of our life. And in fact, our own evaluation of ourselves is not the controlling factor of our lives but it's ultimately in the Lord's hands, then that can keep us from having the kind of uh, mood swings that go from depressed to, to angry, <laughs> that, that produces a kind of uh, self-defensiveness, right? That the moment somebody points out something that they perceive wrong in us, instead of listening to it, we're, we're throwing it back at somebody, right? I mean, which is becoming... Uh, seems to be more and more the problem, uh, partly because people can just do drive-by accusations of everybody in our day. But, but immediately, instead of receiving a rebuke or, or an exhortation, it is, it, it's a deflective defense mechanism, right? And Paul, Paul is, is prepared to say, I'm not going to make too much of your opinion nor of my own opinion. So it's moving it more toward an objective standard, which is I'm accountable to the Lord, right? And, and here's the objective standard. If me thinking I can just do it my own way and the Lord will be happy, I'm really resting in my own judgment, <laughs> right? The objective standard is, so all right, so what has the Lord told us? If I'm going to be evaluated by him, then he sets the standard of that evaluation. Not you and not me. Right? I have to be forcing myself to, to move under the authority of Scripture and let it speak most authoritatively. Right? Because uh, a part of what he's saying in chapter 4 is, is that my conscience is not the final standard. Right? Because I could be wrong. I'm not by this acquitted. Right? So... So I might be able to someday to stand before the Lord and say, I did this in good conscience. And there may be like half credit for that. Right? But it's not going to be full credit if what I did was actually contrary to God's word. Because my conscience isn't the standard. It's the master's will that's the standard. Now, my goal and ambition ought to be to see those things lined up, right? To have a conscience formed by Scripture. But, but I think um, uh, hopefully our view of sanctification is real enough in light of Scripture and our lives to know we're never going to get there <laughs> till glorification. There's not going to be an exact match between my conscience and Scripture because there's always going to be a fight going on between the flesh and the spirit in me. Right? There's, there's no place of sinless perfection or actually living above all known sin or any other framework that you want to try and pull it off, right? 
That doesn't diminish the effort to have a good conscience, but that comes through the Word, 1 Timothy 1.5, right? The goal of our instruction is love from a good conscience, right? So the Word is what's going to ultimately work to bring me in line and should bring other people's opinions in line, but short of glorification, we may find ourselves with differences. And at that point, it's, all right, so based on what I know from the Word, I'm content to leave my case with the Lord. That's really what's going on. All right, it's not just saying, hey, I'm, I'm, go- I'm all good, so I'll just leave it to the Lord. No, it's I'm, I'm, I'm working hard to make certain I understand what God has said here and, and, and then uh, work out from that. So I think we have to have a, a right perspective on all three of those. All right, so let me just make some, some uh, clarifications. I started to insert the word quick there and then realized, for the sake of my conscience, I probably, <laughs> probably can't do that, all right? This does not mean that Paul had a selfish approach to ministry, right? And, and I think that's important uh, because sometimes, you know, I've been trying to avoid using common terms, right? But, um, you know, uh, and, and because the buzzwords change like every, you know, half generation or so, right? So, so when I was young, a long, long time ago, uh, the way people talked about it was insecurity versus security. Right Right now, you don't hear a whole lot about it. I mean, occasionally, but you hear about where do you find your identity? Right? And if you find your identity in other people's opinions, then you're going to have problems, right? Or if you create your own identity contrary to the Scriptures, you're going to have problems. So, so what, what's happened is it's, it's the same basic kind of concept. Um, and and, and I'll, I'll step into it a little bit more. But the point would be, is sometimes the overreaction to being a people pleaser, right, can almost sometimes be like a, a at the low level sort of a people indifferent ministry. I really don't care about you, right? I'm just going to do it the way I want to do it. And sometimes a sort of a people despising ministry, right? They They basically actually speak as if, uh, the people who think differently than them or have different ideas about them, it's only because they're, you know, losers of some variation, right? They're just dumb sheep. I mean, you can hear people talking like that. I mean, these are blood-bought Christians. They're just dumb sheep, right? Which I think is a, a gross overplay of the metaphor, <laughs> Right? Or just immediately concluding, because they have a difference of opinion on it, that they're fleshly because they don't agree with you. Right? And, and it may not be that. I mean, it, it could be that they have a, a genuinely conscious, formed conviction against, based on the Word. Right? And, and, and that's, you know, so... So uh, there's a part of it that we have to guard against these overreactions. And and Paul clearly is not saying that he's going to do ministry the way he wants to do it. And the rest of you can just shut up. Because in chapter 9, he says, Though I'm free from all men, I make myself the servant of all, so that I might win some. Right. So he doesn't look at other people's opinions and say, I really don't care about you. I'm just serving Jesus. No, he said, I 
have a responsibility that includes the lost and the professing church by the time you come to chapter 10, right? He tries to seek to please all men rather than himself so that he might win some. All right, so, so it would be wrong to think that Paul's mindset in chapter 4 is expressing a kind of selfishness about ministry. That I get to decide what I do, when I do it, how I do it, and it really doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Okay, because I am the center of it. That's what I mean by the selfishness of it. It's a preoccupation with self rather than being a servant. In chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, he says, I most gladly will spend and be spent for your souls. Right? He, 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 he's taking a stance where he views what he has and even himself as being expendable for the good of other people's souls. Right? It's not selfish what he's doing here in chapter 4. He's not saying, I will march to the beat of my own drum. And if you're not happy about it, you can go find a new church. Right? I mean, he's not building ministry around himself. He's actually trying to show that that um, there's a gap, I would say, between being a servant of people in order to win them while remaining the servant of Christ and becoming the slave of people's opinions. There's a gap there. right? You can have your eye fixed on the judgment seat of Christ and know that that will actually lead you into a kind of servant-hearted ministry to other people. That's different than effectively handing the reins of your life over to other people's opinions and being controlled by them. Right? And so the, the option isn't being a people pleaser or serving yourself. Those are not the options. Right? The options are between being a servant for Christ's sake or becoming the servant of people apart from Christ. And, and so we need to recognize that. I, th- I think as well, and this is a place where we have to guard ourselves, is that we can't read what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 4 as meaning that, that you can have a heartless approach to ministry. And what I mean by that is that you have no affections toward the people you, were, uh, you serve and, and work alongside of. Right, Because in chapter 16, verse 24, he expresses his love to them. In chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, he's concerned. He says, our heart, our heart is open to you. Would you open your heart to us? Okay, and I don't think he's talking romantic, emotional, but, but the affections. Paul's affections were toward these people. He didn't, he didn't uh, treat them as cogs in the ministry wheel. Right? He wasn't just treating this as purely a task kind of an approach. And, and, and you folks are just sort of ancillary to the, the, the accomplishment of the goal or objective that we have. He actually had a heart for them. He, he, I mean, the reason he spends so much time writing to them and, and sending messengers to them is because he actually wants to see them make spiritual progress. He wants the church to be healthy. He wants them to not be beguiled by the devil. Right? He actually cares about them. So when he says it's an insignificant thing 
to me to be judged by you or any human court, don't hear that as, I could care less about you people. He does actually care about them. He, he's concerned about them and spiritual progress in their lives and the health of the church of Corinth. He's not going to be controlled by their evaluations. right? And that's probably what makes it the hard thing. Because it's easy when someone is not responding well to you to protect yourself by dismissing them. Right? Especially in our culture. Right? I mean, uh, obviously, I'm, 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 I'm probably speaking a little bit as a, as a, a um, you know, naive, because I've never lived in any other culture, and I've never lived like 100 years ago, right? But if we all lived in a small village, <laughs> and the options for us to leave that village and go somewhere else were not available we probably wouldn't be so quick to just dismiss human relationships, right? Now, obviously it happened. I mean, you, you know, Hatfields and McCoys is a real kind of deal. But, but the fact is, because of our high mobility, the potential to cocoon our lives and be self-contained is very easy for us to just go, forget you. I don't, you know, you don't like me? Great, get lost. Let's just go on with life. And you can actually see that showing up into ways that people talk about life and ministry in the church, right? I mean, there is probably a sort of a very unshepherding kind of mindset. Right? I mean, the most famous one in the in most recent years was Dris Mark Driscoll talking about, you know, throwing people off the bus and then backing over them, right? So it wasn't just enough to say, Hey, not everybody's going to get on your bus and want to go the direction. So at some point, you just got to say, we're going different directions and take off. His was, you know, you throw them off the bus and then back the bus over them. Right? That's basically saying, you don't like what we're doing? Take a hike. Take a hike. Right? That was, that's not Paul's. Paul's clearly not saying to the Corinthians, take a hike. That's why he, he's writing this. And wanting to come and visit them again. We know he expresses that at the, at the beginning of 2 Corinthians. And he writes uh, pleading with them in 2 Corinthians not to do the things that they're doing. He, he genuinely cared about them. Right? He wasn't just discarding them or dismissing them in any way. And so I think we have to not draw the conclusion that we can be selfish or heartless and I would suggest as well that it would have a modifying, it's in, and probably these are not completely isolated, but I would think as well from what we see in the rest of what Paul writes is that it is no excuse for harsh, any kind of harsh approach to ministry as well. Right? There's a difference between a firm approach and a harsh approach. Right, look in the same chapter. Go down to uh, verse 14, for instance. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. If you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators. Right. So, so he's speaking to the church generally and, and doing so not in like a harsh, castigating kind of way that's going to flay them. 
but he's appealing to them as a spiritual father. He's trying to exhort them as someone who loves them like a father loves children, right? He's, he's trying to call them. But he also is prepared to deal firmly, right? Keep, uh, if you go down a little farther, verse 19. Well, let's start in 18 so you can see it. But now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? I mean, I, I would love to, to uh, ask Paul what that means entirely, right? Or to, or to have it happen. I mean, wouldn't you like to be the fly on the Corinthian church wall when Paul shows up to the arrogant ones with the rod? And with power, I mean, what does that mean? You know, it, it certainly seems very firm on Paul's part to confront the people who are destroying the church. But he has clearly segmented, right, the church. Some of you are arrogant. And those arrogant ones are going to have to be dealt with. And I'm going to come, but his whole appeal even still is that they would repent, right? Because when you say, I mean, think about it like a dad talking to his kids. Am I going to need to come there and spank you, or are you gonna, am I going to be able to come to you in a spirit of love and gentleness? Right? There's the, the, it would be a sick father that's hoping the child will choose the spanking. Right? The implication of putting those two options out there is, Here's how I really want to come. I want to come in a spirit of love and gentleness. Don't make me come in power and and with a rod. Which, you know, I mean, it could go all the way up to like what Paul did to Elias, right? I mean, there was someone resisting and he said, you're, you're going to be in a cloud of darkness for many days. I mean, Paul would have had the power to do that. Right? We don't. But... But Paul was really saying here, listen, here's, here's what's at stake in this. And even in his probably one of his most firm statements toward them, he is actually not doing it harshly. Right? He's not threatening them with a beating as if he takes pleasure in it. Like, I can't wait to get there and nail you turkeys. Right? He's saying, listen... There's arrogance that needs to be repented of because I want to come in gentleness. Right? So, so don't think his, his indifference to their evaluation was reflective of selfishness in his heart or of no care for them or that it excused him to be harsh toward them. Because those things are not true if you read through the rest of the Corinthian correspondence. Those are not true. So, so we need to guard ourselves against an overreaction, right? Uh, an overreaction that, that basically starts to actually be about us because we're quick to, to sort of develop an Elijah complex, right? Jezebel threatens his life, and Elijah runs out, says, I'm the only one left, Lord. You know, and I'm so, I'm so tired of living. Just take me home. Because look at all I've done for you. 
and look at the way they're responding to me. Right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the danger if we don't stop where Paul does. <laughs> and Paul's saying, I'm, I'm the Lord's servant. I'm prepared to leave my evaluation to him. My self-conclusion is not final. Yours is not final. So we need to think of right about this. He's not going out here and going, I'm, I alone am serving Christ. And you know what? I just despair of doing it because these worthless people who don't appreciate all the sacrifices that I've made for them. Right? There's the danger point. And we have to guard ourselves against it if we really want to, to, to lead well. Right? Because I'm pretty sure you're going to end up with somebody who's not happy with you. Really good chance. Somewhere along the line, somebody's not going to be happy about something you said or did or, or some decision leadership-wise. And, and if that's going to ruin your life, you might want to choose a different life path. <laughs> right? The better option would be to, to come to grips with the heart of Paul on this. And that is that he was God-centered in his motivation. Right? He is the servant of Christ, a steward of the mysteries of God, and he knew his accountability was there. So that was his anchor point. And also he had come to the place in his life where he articulates in a number of places that he, view, he viewed others as being more important than himself. Right? Never more important than God, but clearly more important than him. Right? He was willing to serve people even if he was not loved for doing so. Right? Second Corinthians twelve fifteen says, the more I love you, should I be loved less? With a question mark. They're just left hanging there to the Corinthians. Right right after he said he would spend and be spent. And that the ultimate goal for us of accountability, a, a, a good accounting before God, and therefore our commitment to the mission of Jesus Christ has to be greater than ourself. I mean, in some senses, and, and I know this is maybe an overstatement of it, but it really does come down, I think, to as simply as what Jesus said, right? If anyone will come after me, let him what? Deny himself, right? And and I don't think that Jesus is teaching uh, sort of like an anti-self position as much as a self-neglect, self-forgetfulness. It's not about me. I'm taking up my cross and I'm following Christ. Right? And, and, and the problem out at Elijah is that you're more concerned about what people think about you than what the mission is you've been given. And, and the problem with the people pleaser is that he's more concerned about what people think about him, which means in both cases, his focus is actually on himself. Right? And that's where, and, I, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to dive into it as much as I probably would love to, but... Um, that's why I think sometimes this, this whole talk about finding your identity starts to go in the ditch in my mind. I mean, uh, you know, a while ago I was with a, a guy who had been given a sabbatical time from his church for a month. And one of the conditions of it was that he, he basically had to give up his work phone so that nobody could call him during that month. He was just supposed to be away from us, right? Which is not a bad idea, you know, for a breakaway. But he made the comment, he said, 
You talk about you find out where your identity is built fast when nobody's calling you for help. And I remember sitting there thinking, why do you frame it that way? Right? I mean, what's wrong with being viewed as a minister of Christ Jesus? Paul seems to claim that title. I mean, would, would I, I, you know, it wasn't the right context, but I felt like saying, so if, if you uh, had some reason where you needed to be away from your wife for a month, would you think it was really good for me to find out that I, sh- I, shouldn't, I shouldn't find my identity in being a husband? Right? I should actually be content without my wife caring about me. Or you were gone from your kids for a month. Should you, should you say, boy, you find out how much your identity is wrapped around being a dad. As if your relationship to your kids is not a part of your identity. You are a husband. You are a dad. You are a pastor. It's not just some coat you put on. It is actually who you are. And, and, and the problem isn't about finding your identity and all of that. It really is coming down to how you view yourself in this regard. When people start to speak against you and it hurts, the goal isn't, well, just take off your pastor identity and find your identity in Jesus. Right? Because that's just psychological mumbo-jumbo in my mind. It doesn't change whether it hurts or not. At the end of the day, you have to see it in its proper relation. That is, I would love for these people to love me, but the reality of it is, my life is not aimed at securing their love. (laughs) My life is aimed at the one whose love constrains me, so I live for him, and, and therefore, I need to be faithful to him, even if it means adverse responses to me, right? And, and I think what we've got to do is, is, is simplify the concept, because I think what we're looking for is like psychological and emotional freedom instead of the kind of call that Christ had, which is deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, right? So... So it's, a, it's an insignificant thing in the final big picture if they judge you harshly. And your answer to that isn't, well, I judge myself okay. Right? I need to look at myself in the right way that comes to a good judgment because that's the answer to that. No, the answer is ultimately, I'm going to give an account to the Lord and, and, and by God's grace, I want to be able to give that account as faithfully as I can. Because it's to him that I answer. Then you can be buffered. Will it hurt? Sure it hurts. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not fun. Nobody picks rejection for fun. Right? But it's not determinative. It should not be controlling. We should, in fact, have our eyes on Christ and be following him, prepared that since they did this to him, <laughs> they're going to do it to those who follow him. Right? He told us a bunch of times. So we should just accept it and and move like good servants. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much uh, for this text of Scripture and the truth that it contains and uh, help us to meditate on it and think through it because uh, we do live, we live in a world which is radically self-centered. Uh, we live in a culture 
that that puts a high priority on being accepted of being approved by others and and what can look like a culturally positive value at times is just a veneer over the fear of man. And that always brings a snare. So help us to guard our hearts against this so we might serve you sincerely and carefully and and with confidence that each will have his praise from you. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.